you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. At around 9.30 p.m. on the night of May 22, 1922, Huntsville police were notified by the 911 dispatcher of a possible burglary in process with an injured victim at the scene. The location was Boulder Circle, an affluent neighborhood nestled among the mountains in Huntsville, Alabama. Within minutes of arriving on the scene, police discovered local ophthalmologist Dr. Jack Wilson lying in the upstairs hallway. His lifeless body was surrounded by a pool of blood on the hardwood bordered by two Persian rugs and pale blue wall-to-wall carpeting. A bloody metal baseball bat was found lying nearby. The doctor, 55, was well-liked and generous, sometimes waiving the charges for struggling patients. According to People magazine, he kept everyone entertained with his unapologetically cornball sense of humor. He wore Christmas ties in the summer, Even the way Wilson concluded his will was meant to be funny. To be used only if absolutely necessary, i.e. if I am dead, he wrote. Try real hard to revive me if I only look dead. His sister-in-law said he was fun to be with, sincere, kind, and didn't have a pretentious bone in his body. Who would want to kill such a kind-hearted person in such a brutal way? What could possibly be the motive? As homicide detectives began combing Jack Wilson's home for clues that day, none of them realized they were about to become involved in the most notorious, shocking murder case in Huntsville's history. Stay with me as we explore the mystery of the Wilson murder trial. I'm Jaden McKell, and you're listening to Straight Up Enigmas. If you enjoy the show, it would be super amazing if you could head over to Apple Music, subscribe, and leave a review. It really helps out our podcast. Connect with us on social media where we post each episode as it airs. We're proud to be a member of the Straight Up Strange Network. Follow the network's Facebook page at Straight Up Strange and check out our discussion forum, The Strange Room, to enter a world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. I'll include a link to the group in the show notes. Also, if you'd like to support our podcast, please check us out at patreon.com slash straightupenigmas to receive bonus content, shoutouts on social media, personalized messages from me, and early access to our regularly scheduled episodes.
Without further ado, let's get back to the show. After interviewing neighbors and reconstructing the events, police determined that Dr. Wilson left his office around 4 p.m. and came home. After changing his clothes, he went outside to his front yard, where neighbors claimed they saw him using a baseball bat to drive a political campaign sign in the ground at approximately 4.30 p.m. He then took a stepladder from the garage and carried it to the upstairs hallway, where he removed a smoke detector that was later found lying on the bed disassembled. At this point, police theorized Wilson was surprised by someone waiting for him in the house. The unknown attacker grabbed the baseball bat and began beating the doctor. After the doctor collapsed to the floor, the assailant proceeded to stab him twice with a knife. While the crime had originally been reported as a possible burglary, it had none of the typical signs. There were no open drawers, no ransacked closets, no overturned furniture. All of Jack's credit cards were still inside his wallet. Without evidence of a break-in or theft, the case was beginning to look more like an inside job. Police thought it was someone who knew the doctor's habits and had access to his home that killed him. Dr. Wilson had been married to his wife, Betty, for 14 years. They had met at Huntsville's Humana Hospital, where Jack was a doctor and she worked as a nurse specializing in kidney dialysis. At first, Betty was too upset to be questioned, but later investigation revealed she'd had lunch with her husband that day around noon. Dr. Wilson went back to his office and Betty spent the next few hours shopping in preparation for a trip they'd planned to take the next morning. After attending an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that evening, she returned home at about 9.30, where she discovered her husband's body. She went to a neighbor's home and they called 911. By using credit card receipts and eyewitnesses, the police were able to verify Betty Wilson's whereabouts for the entire day, except for one 30-minute period at around 2.30 p.m., and another between 5 and 5.30 p.m. Other family members were looked into as well, but all appeared to have solid alibis. The first break for investigators came when the Shelby County Sheriff's Office passed on a tip they'd received a week prior to the murder. A woman had called, concerned about her friend James White, who had bragged while drunk about plans to kill a doctor in Huntsville. White's story was jumbled, but he basically admitted that he was infatuated with a woman named Peggy Lowe who'd recruited him to murder her twin sister's husband. The caller admitted she doubted the story. Quote, White liked to talk big when he was drinking, and lately he had been drunk almost all the time. But she was concerned enough to pass along what she'd heard to police. After the Huntsville police learned of the tip, it took only minutes to establish that Peggy Lowe was Betty Wilson's twin sister. Investigators decided it was time to pay James White a visit. James Dennison White, described as a dirty man with ungroomed hair and bad teeth, was a 42-year-old Vietnam veteran with a history of mental disorders and antisocial behavior, 
caused largely by drug and alcohol abuse. One of his last mental evaluations described him as suffering from delusions and the inability to separate fact from fantasy. White had spent time in a number of mental institutions as well as jail. While serving time for selling drugs, White escaped. He was captured almost a year later in Arkansas, where he was involved in kidnapping a man and his wife. When questioned by detectives, White initially denied everything, but slowly, as the evening and night wore on, he began to contradict himself, spinning a web of half-truths, lies, and fantasies. He first denied knowing Peggy Lowe, and then admitted to knowing her. He denied knowing Betty Wilson, then said he was going to do some work for her. A pattern gradually emerged. As White would get caught in a contradiction, he'd admit to that thing, but continued to deny everything else. It was a type of behavior that was typical to most criminal investigations. Detectives understood from experience that getting White to admit the truth was going to be a long, drawn-out process. Finally, just as the sun was peeking over the horizon, White broke down. Though it would take several months and numerous confessions to get him to tell the whole story, White admitted to being hired by Peggy Lowe and Betty Wilson to kill Dr. Jack Wilson. White claimed to have met Peggy Lowe at the elementary school where she worked as a first-grade teacher and he worked as a part-time handyman. According to White, it was after he'd done some work at Betty Wilson's house that she became infatuated with him and started spending hours on the phone with him. She gradually began to talk about her husband and to hint that she would like to see him killed. A short time later, while Betty had dropped the subject of her husband, she mentioned that her sister wanted to hire a hitman. White said, pretending to play along, he knew someone who'd do it for $20,000. Betty Wilson told him that was too much money since her sister was practically broke. Finally, they agreed on a price of $5,000. White told police Peggy Lowe gave him a plastic bag containing half the sum in small bills. Gradually, as White's story evolved, it included phone calls between him and the sisters, the twins giving him a gun, a trip to Guntersville to pick up expense money inside a library book, and finally meeting Betty Wilson in Huntsville to get more expense money. On the day of the murder, White claimed Betty Wilson met him in the parking lot of a nearby shopping center and drove him to her home where he waited for two hours until Dr. Wilson arrived. White maintained he was unarmed at the time. He later stated that his experiences in Vietnam had soured him on guns. Instead, he'd brought along a long rope. White said that although he remembered struggling with Wilson over the baseball bat, he did not remember killing the doctor. After the murder, he said Betty Wilson came to the house, picked him up, and drove him back to the shopping center. He then retrieved his truck, drove back to Vincent, and went out drinking with his brother. As proof of his story, White led police to his home, where a gun registered to Betty Wilson and a book from the Huntsville Public Library were found. Meanwhile, a source close to the case described White after he was brought back to Huntsville as being in physical agony, almost climbing the walls and begging to be given his medicine. 
The medicine, allegedly lithium, was withheld because it was in a different bottle than it originally came in and White did not have a prescription for it. While White was unsure about dates, times, and specific events, and it would take time to sort the story out, detectives felt there was enough evidence to arrest the twin sisters. The news of Betty Wilson's arrest for the murder of her husband exploded like a bombshell in Huntsville. Not only was she a well-known socialite, but her husband's estate was rumored to be worth almost $6 million. Adding fuel to the fire was the report that Betty had helped host a fundraiser for a popular political figure the night before the murder. Huntsville is a small town, especially during political seasons. Gossip spread so quickly that daily newspapers were already out of date when they hit the streets. As the puzzle pieces slowly fell into place, a portrait of Betty Wilson as a cold-blooded murderess began to take shape. Rumor had it she'd always been a gold digger. It was clear she enjoyed the perks of being an eye surgeon's wife. She wore a Rolex watch and cruised around town in her burgundy Mercedes convertible. Witnesses would later testify about the unkind things Betty said to and about her husband. Dr. Wilson suffered from Crohn's disease, a chronic inflammation of the digestive tract that often leads to unpleasant bowel-related symptoms, which his wife was said to find repulsive. Most shocking, however, was the talk that centered on her extramarital lifestyle. A New York Daily News report would later describe Betty as a woman with a thriving sex life that rarely involved her husband. The AA meetings she attended regularly made for convenient hookups. Jack Wilson, on the other hand, was, by all accounts, a loving husband who would do just about anything for his wife. On May 22nd, the day he was murdered, Dr. Wilson had been looking forward to leaving on a trip to Santa Fe, New Mexico with Betty the next day. He had hoped it would rekindle their dying relationship. We'll be back right after this. A big thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. I personally have loved using the easy-to-navigate format of Podcorn's website to find brands that are willing to partner with our podcast. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you at every step to ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when Podcorn monetizes. Click the link in my show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. When the news media caught up with the story, they pursued it with a vengeance. 
Newspapers, magazines, and television shows from across the country began following the story and reporters seemed to be competing against one another to see who could come up with the most salacious version of events. When members of the DA's office and the sheriff's office began leaking information to the press, it became clear they were trying to leverage the case for political advantage. The situation became even more politicized when the DA agreed to a controversial plea bargain for White, which would give him life with parole possible in seven years in exchange for helping convict the sisters. At the hearing, the prosecution successfully argued that Betty Wilson, being the beneficiary of her husband's will and the fact that she'd engaged in sexual affairs was enough to prove motive for murder. James White's tape-recorded confession provided the evidence. After a brief hearing, both sisters were ordered to stand trial for murder. Peggy Lowe was granted bond and released after her neighbors in Vincent put their homes up for security. Betty Wilson was denied bond and remained in the Madison County Jail until her trial. A short time later, Dr. Wilson's family filed suit to deny Betty Wilson access to his estate. Despite the posturing going on from all sides, many legal analysis began to doubt that the prosecution really had enough to convict. There was no eyewitness testimony to corroborate that James White and Betty Wilson had been together at any time, and there was no physical evidence linking White to the crime scene. Another major headache for both sides was White's constantly changing stories in which he describe events one day and offer a completely different version the following week. James White might have been thinking along similar lines because he suddenly recalled a fact that he claimed not to have remembered before. White said on the night of the crime, he'd changed clothes in the Wilson house and placed them in a plastic bag along with the rope and knife and hid them under a rock a few feet from the swimming pool. The bag was thought to be the same one in which he'd received the money from Peggy Lowe. Although the clothes and bag were found exactly where White said they'd be, forensic pathologists were never able to establish if they had been bloodstained or if they actually belonged to White. Officials later explained that the clothes were not found during the initial search because the police dog had been suffering from allergies. The clothes were to become one of the biggest mysteries of the case. No one seriously believed they could have been missed during the initial search. Even members of the Huntsville police expressed skepticism. Although he eventually was offered the plea deal, many believed White had gotten someone to plant the clothes in an attempt to bolster his credibility and escape the electric chair. By this time, the case of the evil twins had captured national attention. The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, and People magazine ran lengthy articles. Tabloid TV shows, including Hard Copy and Inside Edition, ran featured stories. When two national television networks expressed interest in making a movie, agents descended on Huntsville and bought up movie rights from most of the parties involved. As summer wore on, even the most impartial observers began to take sides. Never in the history of Huntsville had a case generated so much controversy and news coverage. Due to the publicity, the judge ordered the trial venue moved to Tuscaloosa. When Betty Wilson's murder trial finally began, the case boiled down to one simple question. 
Who was telling the truth, Betty Wilson or James White? White said that on the day of the murder, he hid upstairs in the Wilson's house until Jack Wilson came upstairs. But White would later claim he had already decided not to use the gun the twins had given him, and then realized he didn't want to kill Dr. Wilson at all. Unfortunately, White testified, when he encountered Jack Wilson in the hallway, there was a struggle and White beat Wilson with the bat and stabbed him twice in the abdomen. Then, Betty met him outside and drove him to his truck. Regardless of the hard evidence, everyone agreed that the central focus of the prosecution's case was to depict Betty Wilson as a cold, immoral woman who wanted her husband dead. To prove this, they paraded a stream of witnesses who testified about hearing her curse and belittle her husband. Other witnesses testified to having knowledge of Betty Wilson taking men to her home for sexual affairs. Perhaps the most dramatic part of the trial came when a black former city employee took the stand and testified to having had relations with the defendant. Although the prosecution denied playing the race card, observers of the trial all agreed it had the same effect. The case went to the jury at 12.28 on Tuesday, March 2, 1993. After deliberating the rest of the day and much of the following day, the jury returned a guilty verdict. Jurors later revealed the deciding factor in their decision was the telephone records. Betty Wilson was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Six months later, Peggy Lowe stood trial for her part in the murder for hire. Much of the evidence was a near repeat of that used during her sister's trial, with the same witnesses making the same testimony. New to the case, however, was testimony by expert witnesses who stated it was possible that two people might have been involved in the murder. Citing the lack of blood splatter on the walls, the experts theorized the murder probably occurred some other place than the hallway and was caused by something other than a baseball bat. For the defense, the most crucial moment likely occurred when White testified that Betty Wilson picked him up at the murder scene between 6 and 6.30 p.m. on the day in question, a full hour later than he had previously testified. If the jurors believed this version of White's story, it would have been impossible for Betty Wilson to have participated. The biggest difference in the trials, though, were the women being tried. While Betty Wilson was vilified as a cold murderess, Lowe was portrayed as a virtuous, compassionate, church-going woman. She was a happily married first-grade teacher known for her kindness toward people in need. Her husband was minister of music at their church. The defense made a point of introducing the jury to Peggy's husband, three daughters, and son who were in the courtroom to support her. Dozens of her fellow First Baptist Church parishioners, some carrying free Peggy Lowe signs, showed up at the courthouse to support her innocence. It took only two hours and 11 minutes of deliberation for the jury to find Peggy Lowe not guilty. In this trial, jurors cited White's lack of credibility as the major deciding factor. According to the Associated Press, Lowe said of the verdict, I asked the Lord to send me a good lawyer, and he did. While a prosecutor grumbled that trying to convict Peggy Lowe was like fighting God. 
Although Peggy Lowe can never be tried again thanks to the rules of double jeopardy, the fact remains that it's almost impossible for one sister to be innocent of the crime and the other guilty. Betty Wilson is serving out her sentence of life without parole in a prison in Alabama. She works in the sewing department and spends her free time writing to her supporters. She has since remarried. Her sister served as her maid of honor for the prison ceremony and the two remain close. Her case is being appealed. Both sisters continue to maintain their innocence. James White is serving a life sentence at an institution in Springville, Alabama, where he is attending trade school and receiving counseling for drug and alcohol abuse. In 1994, he recanted his story of the twins' involvement, saying that he had never met Betty Wilson or slept with Peggy Lowe. He recanted his claims that Lowe ensnared him in a murder-for-hire plan. He also said that he blacked out during the time of the murder. He later changed his story back to the original. He will be eligible for parole on March 1st, 2020. Was James White telling the truth when he accused both Betty Wilson and her twin sister, Peggy Lowe, of hiring him to murder Jack Wilson? If he was, how was it possible that one sister was convicted while the other was exonerated? If Peggy was completely innocent and Betty was the one secretly plotting with White to kill the doctor, why would White also accuse Peggy? Was he trying to get revenge because Peggy had rejected his sexual advances? Or, as many believe, was White a psychological liar? Did Jack Wilson even die the way White claimed he did? Due to the lack of blood splatter on the walls, some experts theorize the murder actually occurred at some other place than the hallway and was caused by something other than a baseball bat. Maybe, with White's parole hearing fast approaching, the Wilson and Lowe families will finally know the answers to these long sought after questions. What do you think really happened the day Jack Wilson was murdered? Find us on Instagram at Straight Up Enigmas or Twitter at Straight Enigmas and let us know. You can also contact us through email at straightupenigmas at gmail.com or through our website, straightupenigmas.home.blog. If you like the show, please remember to hop onto Apple Music to give us a five-star rating. It really helps the podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you two Tuesdays from now with a new episode of Straight Up Enigmas. Enigmas.